And then the uh, scripture passage we're going to be in tonight is from Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. Word of God reads, now when he, Jesus, when he said to them, or now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord that we're looking at tonight. Uh, you may be seated. What a... Uh, what a line, what a line that, uh, that hymn ended with. Uh, may I never outlive my love to thee or for thee. Um, it's a true desire in my heart the longer I live. I'm still young for most of you, but uh, the older that I am getting, uh, the more I sense my need to be captivated by the love of Christ so that my love for Christ doesn't wane, right? Uh, last night we were, some of us were at a Seder supper at the Joneses house and um, it was a blessing to be there, but one part of the celebration really caught my attention. And it was when we ended the Seder uh, remembrance, I guess, of, of just uh, the Lord his dealings with Christ and sending redemption for us through Christ. This whole celebration ended, this whole supper ended with a, a statement that said, next year in New Jerusalem. Right? Because that's how the Jews in one way would end their, their Seder. Traditionally, it would be next year in Jerusalem. Well, in a Christian flair to that, being added to that, next year in New Jerusalem. And I thought to myself, how often does that really pop into my mind? How often do I really think about New Jerusalem in all that Christ has done to secure my entrance into that great city on that day? Um, I never want to outlive my love for Christ. I never, I never want to get to the place where my desire for this world is outweighing my desire to be with my Lord in New Jerusalem. And I know that the only way my love for Christ is going to be sustained and inflamed until that day is if I keep my eyes fixed upon Christ's love for me as it was demonstrated in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his intercession for me in glory. And so tonight, what I hope will happen as we consider the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, as it was predicted throughout the Old Testament, I hope that you'll see the reality that for thousands of years, God has been preparing us for how he was going to bring salvation to us through a suffering Messiah. That he was going to bring salvation, he was going to bring life to undeserving, sinful people just like you and me. 
through the means of a suffering Savior. And uh, we have the privilege of looking back and seeing who that Savior is and how he accomplished that end in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we get ready to look into that, would you pray with me? Ask for God to bless his word and open our minds to understand it. Father, it is, it is our great privilege to come and to remember how you have demonstrated your great love for us tonight. Lord, for you have demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, your beloved son, died for us. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would pour the love of God into our hearts tonight. That you would set us free from the distractions of the world Lord, that you would uh, clear our minds from any thoughts of, of what anyone else is thinking around us or, uh, or, or how strange we might feel in this moment or, or any, anything that might be drawing our attention away from what we came here to focus on tonight. Lord, I pray you would, you would give us a, uh, an undistracted, undivided mind and that you would help us focus in on your love as it has been demonstrated to us through the suffering of Jesus Christ. Father, be with me. Help me uh, declare truth for the sake of your name. And be with your people. Lord, give them ears to hear. Give them hearts to receive. Give them uh, empowering in their souls by your spirit so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would know his love more fully and be filled with all the fullness of God as a result of thinking upon your love for us tonight. Father, pray for anyone who may be an unbeliever in this room tonight. I pray that they would see through the sufferings of Jesus Christ their only way of being reconciled to you, Father. Lord, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that clings to what Christ has done as the only means that you have provided for sinners like us to be saved from the judgment we deserve. Lord, help us see in Christ the greatness of your love for unworthy sinners. And no matter who we are tonight, may we be drawn after you in the light of it. Father, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Come to it at last. We call this Good Friday, as we've mentioned a number of times. We celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Day uh, as unique Fridays and Sundays throughout the year, or a unique Friday and a unique Sunday uh, in the year, uh, because it provides for us an opportunity to focus on the central tenets of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a unique way. In one sense, the death of Christ should be your focus every single day, right? As Paul said, I, I, I live by faith in the light of the fact that Jesus has loved me and given himself up for me. There's no part of my life that should not be governed by that reality. Therefore, there's no part of my life that should be lived outside of thinking consciously of that reality, that Christ has loved me and he's given himself up for me. There's no, there's no uh, 
no, no part of our lives that ought to be lived outside of the reality of the resurrection and what that means for us, that we have been born again unto a living hope by the power of God through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that empowers us to walk with Christ in newness of life as we go throughout our days. So there's not a, it's not as though any day of our lives, any day throughout the rest of the year, should not be focused on these two things, right? But what happens on Good Friday and what happens on Resurrection Day is we, we, we focus even more intently, not only as individuals, but as a corporate body, upon the main central elements of our hope of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Christianity is all about. It's what we are celebrating here tonight, and it's what we're going to celebrate on Sunday morning. And apart from what we are celebrating here tonight and Sunday morning, if those things never happen, then all of this is a sham, and we should just go home and give up. This is what it's all about. And if our hearts are not stirred by that reality, if we are not encouraged to live our lives more, more devotedly to the Lord Jesus Christ with purity and simplicity of faith in light of what happened on Good Friday and what happened on Resurrection Day, then we're not Christians. Or we're distracted. And we need to repent. On Good Friday, we remember the hope that we have in Christ's death on the cross. We remember not just what happened when Jesus died upon the cross, but we recall to our minds why what happened was so important. Why was it so necessary for the Son of God to step down out of glory, to be enfleshed, to walk and live a 33-year life of perfection and then die on a cross. Why does that matter? That's why we're here tonight. God tells us in his word that through the death of this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus was actually accomplishing something for us. He wasn't just a, a helpless martyr or victim he wasn't just some Jewish radical that happened to be caught by the Romans. There was something purposeful that Jesus was accomplishing when he gave his life up on that tree. God tells us in his word that Jesus was reconciling sinners to God through this death. He was ransoming sinners from death and condemnation that the law of God demands that we receive as sinners. Scripture tells us that Jesus, through his death, was securing for us an eternal redemption, at least an eternal redemption for anyone who puts their trust in him. It tells us that Jesus, through his death, was releasing us from our condemnation and sin. He was rescuing us from judgment. He was removing the dark stain of sin from our souls. He was restoring us to a right relationship with God that has been secured for us through all eternity by the power of his blood and by the grace of God. All because in his death and by his death, Jesus Christ, the enfleshed Son of God, was making atonement for us. You guys know what the word atonement means. You can break it down into three parts and you get right at the heart of it. Atonement means at one meant. That we have been brought into a state of reconciled relationship with God that we, we are now at one with him through what Christ has done.
If you are a believer here tonight, that's what Christ was accomplishing for you when he died on the cross. This is the core of the Christian's hope. And this is why we have any confidence to stand before God in the day of judgment. We need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that what? And that he died for me. That's enough, the Christian says. That's all I need to pass on into eternity and to stand before my God. All I need is Jesus dying for me. This is why the Christian can refer to the darkest day of human history as a good day, a good Friday. But the scriptures tell us that it was not always this way for Jesus' disciples. Christians have not always thought of that Friday as a good Friday, at least not the followers of Jesus who happened to see those events and happened to experience the events that took place on that Friday. They didn't initially think of that Friday as being good. In Luke 24, 17, we read about two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, in his resur- after his resurrection, appeared to them, but he kept his appearance or he kept them from recognizing who he was. Jesus comes to these two disciples who are talking amongst themselves, and and he says, what are you talking about? And they say, are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on here in Jerusalem? And here Jesus just responds kind of, I don't know, it's pretty funny, comical, just to read it in the text. He says, what things? What's been going on? Tell me. Well, as they begin to talk about his crucifixion and all the events that had been related to his death, it says there that they were not rejoicing over the events that took place. In fact, they, it says they stood still looking sad. You read further on in, 24 verse, in chapter 24, verse 21, and after speaking to Jesus about his betrayal, With seeming despondency, they said to Jesus, we were hoping that it was this one. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And in that is a clear confession that they had lost their hope in that reality, or at least as far as they could hope in it. That Friday had not seemed to them like a good Friday. Now, the reason they didn't see that Friday as a good Friday was simply because they did not understand what it was all about. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet Jesus had just been put to death on a cross. It's hard enough for them to understand that the Messiah would die. Even more so, it was difficult for them to comprehend and grasp how it was that the Messiah would be put to death upon a tree. A cross. The cross being, according to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, the cross would fit under that category of hanging someone upon a tree as a public expression that that person was under the curse of God. So how was it that this, if Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen anointed one of God, how was it that he could not only die, but then die in such a way that it seemed as though God had forsaken him? Besides, John 12, 34, hadn't they read from the law that the Christ would 
remain forever? How could it be that Jesus how could it be that Jesus was the Messiah if he died? Well, in Luke 24, 25 through 27, Jesus sets these two disciples straight. And he tells them that their real problem was not with the events that had taken place. Their real problem was that they did not believe in God's word, which had told them that these events would happen. And so beginning in verse 25, Jesus tells these disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, it says that Jesus interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now that phrase, in all the scriptures, Jesus is going to unpack that more fully in Luke 24, verse 44, where he describes all the scriptures as being the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms being the first book of that third body that the Jews identified uh, as the writings. Uh, so Psalms, prophets, and the law um, summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, what Jesus makes clear to these two disciples here is really two things that I can draw out right now. First of all, Jesus makes clear in this passage that the entire Old Testament is about him and about the work that he was going to accomplish for sinners. And so you cannot understand what any part of the Old Testament is really about unless you understand that part of the Old Testament in relation to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And on the flip side, you cannot understand Jesus' life, his death, or his resurrection apart from interpreting all of that in the light of the Old Testament's witness. So you can't understand the Old Testament without interpreting it in light of the life of Jesus. And you cannot understand the life of Jesus without interpreting that in light of the Old Testament. That's Jesus' point here. Secondly, these verses also make clear that the disciples' main problem was not a lack of testimony to that fact. Their main problem was that they did not believe the testimony that God had given. Now, they didn't believe because they had been schooled in an understanding of the Old Testament that did not allow them to understand the Old Testament in light of having a suffering Messiah. Sometimes we don't understand the testimony of the Old Testament, because we don't spend enough time studying it and searching out how Christ is revealed there. Well, anyway, Jesus interpreted for them the Old Testament, and he showed them all things concerning himself as they were written there. As uh, Luke 24, 45 says, he opened their minds to understand what was written. Now, I've heard so many people say, man, I wish I could have been there to hear Jesus unpack the entirety of the Old Testament for these disciples. Well, I got good news for you. You have the record of that in the New Testament itself. So the book of Acts to the book of Revelation is a record of Jesus interpreting the Old Testament in light of him through his apostles. So you can go read how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament by reading the rest of the books of the New Testament. Good news. It's good news. All right. 
Now, verse 46 in Luke 24 gives us a brief summary of what Jesus says the entire Old Testament is specifically about in relation to him. He says in verse 46, thus it is written. Really important to understand when he uses that word thus. That word could be translated more literally or in a literal way or more a different way, if you will, as in this way it has been written. Or you could, under, or you could uh, translate that as it has been written as follows, right? So what Jesus is setting up there is the reality that what he's about to share with his disciples is the grid through which the entire Old Testament is supposed to be read. So that if you're not reading the Old Testament in light of this grid that Jesus is about to lay down for us, you are not reading the Old Testament rightly. Right. And what we find in what follows are three key elements that operate or that, that function as that grid through which we, ought to re, we have to read everything in the Old Testament. Verse uh, uh, 46 goes on to say, thus it is written, Jesus says, that the Christ would suffer. There's one thing. Secondly, that the Christ would rise again from the dead. And then you notice the specificity that Jesus says here. He says the Old Testament doesn't just say that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It says that Jesus was going to rise from the dead on the third day. Have you ever studied that out in the Old Testament to find out where does it say in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to rise again on the third day? Jesus seems to indicate in this verse that it's pretty clear. The Old Testament is all about this. The death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah on the third day, and then the third element being the preaching of the Messiah. The preaching of repentance unto forgiveness of sins unto all the nations in his name. Jesus says those three elements function as the grid through which we read the Old Testament and actually understand what it's all about. Now that is truly amazing to me, that the death and the resurrection and the preaching of the gospel into all nations was not something that the disciples made up. It was not something that was just cherry-picked out of a few obscure texts that were within the Old Testament that they said, ah, that looks like a good one to pull out. We can use that as an argument. No, Jesus says that's not the case. The entire Old Testament is about these things. You guys still with me? Yeah? Amen? All right. So what I want to do to refresh our hearts and renew our minds in the truth. What I want to do tonight and what I want to do Sunday is look into some of those Old Testament texts so that we can understand how they point us to, how the Old Testament points us to the suffering of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, and the universal preaching of the Messiah. Tonight we're specifically going to focus on that suffering element. And... Uh, as I prayed, and as is my prayer even now, I pray that the Lord will enable our hearts to burn within us as we look into the scriptures. So Jesus says, thus it is written in the law and in Moses and law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that the Christ would suffer. Now, how is that reality of suffering presented to us in the Old Testament? Well, there are three primary ways that I'm going to lay out here anyway tonight that I see the Old Testament speaking to us about the reality of the suffering of Messiah. 
Number one way is, or the first way is, it speaks to us about the suffering of the Messiah through a promise. A promise that the Messiah would suffer. Secondly, it speaks to us about the suffering Messiah through pictures of types and shadows that point to a suffering Savior. And then thirdly, it speaks to us about the suffering of the Messiah through the prophets. So, through a promise, through pictures, through the prophets. All right. The first statement, really, to look at if we're trying to understand the suffering of the Messiah from the Old Testament comes in the form of a promise. God had promised us that the Messiah would suffer and that that would be how the Messiah would save God's people. You see this from the very opening chapters of the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is after the ruin of sin and rebellion against God had entered into the human race. After that, God pronounced condemnation over the instigator of that event, which was the devil. Now, the devil appears in this context in the form of a serpent. That means he approached Eve as one of God's good creatures, as a deceiver. And he deceived Eve into disobeying God, and Adam willfully joined her in that obedience. Now, Genesis 3.15, though, is, is God's sentence of condemnation upon the devil for inciting this rebellion against God. It says, I will put, God promising the devil, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now here, the promise of God is that the devil will have a day of reckoning, uh, a day that will be brought, uh, where judgment will be brought against him by one of the seeds of the woman, an offspring, a child, a male child at that. That one day this seed from the woman would be born and he would be the means of the devil's ruin. He would come and would bruise the head of the devil. Devil. That word bruise, it means he would come and grip his head. If you think of somebody coming up and grabbing a person by the collar and just gripping that person and taking them into full measure of their power, right? He will strike at him. He will snap at him. He will crush him. That's the picture that's painted for us in that word. He will bruise him on the head. And the fact that the devil would be bruised on the head signifies that this destruction that would come through the seed of the woman would be a total destruction upon the devil. That it would be an utter undoing, not only of the devil himself, but it would also be a correction and a reversal of what the devil had, had created, what the devil had instigated with humanity. Now, but as this promise says, that crushing of the devil would not happen apart from the seed of the woman being bruised in the process. As that seed moved, in other words, to bring his heel down upon the head of a serpent, as he went to step down upon that head, the picture here is that the serpent would strike out at him and latch upon his heel. According to the promise of God, that striking against the heel would be nothing more than a momentary bruising before that same heel was brought down with full force of the almighty vengeance of God and actually brought annihilation to the serpent. 
But the reality is, is that this, this promise from God, from the very opening of the scriptures, paints for us a picture that a Savior was going to come to humanity and he would deal with this devil that had brought such destruction and havoc into the human race, and he would deal with him by not only striking him on the head, but by being bruised in the process. He was going to suffer in accomplishing this great end. In other words, salvation for mankind, according to this promise, was going to come through a suffering Savior. That was God's first promise given to fallen humanity. Now, the rest of the Old Testament is simply an unfolding of how that promise was going to come about. And you've got to get this if you're going to understand the rest of the Old Testament. If you're going to understand the book of Exodus, if you're going to understand the book of Leviticus, you're going to understand the priesthood and the sacrifices and all the prophets and what they were talking about, you have to get this fact that all of it is stemming out of this first promise of God giving humanity a Savior here in Genesis 3.15. It's all designed to paint a picture and paint within our minds an understanding of what that seed was going to do in order to save us from the condemnation that we deserve. It all flows out of this one promise in Genesis 3.15. So we see this, this picture of a suffering Messiah being given to us in a promise from God that he would come and that he would suffer. Now God also portrayed that the Messiah was going to bring salvation through suffering through various types of shadows that prefigured that reality. And so these are the pictures of types and shadows that point to a, a suffering Savior that would bring salvation to God's people. Now you see some of this. I'm going to go quickly through this so that we don't get too bogged down in all this. I was talking with Corbin last night about where we're going in this sermon. And he says, all right, man, I'll bring my coffee uh, thermos that keeps coffee hot for a number of hours you're going to walk through the whole Old Testament and talk about Jesus from there. I think it's going to be longer than 30 minutes. Like, yeah, yeah, it will be. Yeah, yeah, it will be. But we also see, we see this suffering of a, of a Messiah who would come and save the people of God through various pictures that are given to us in the Old Testament. Now, these pictures are of salvation um, that, uh, that God provided for his people, but they are pictures of a temporary salvation as they're revealed in the Old Testament. So, for example, we find with Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, a picture of salvation for God's people coming through one suffering, right? So in Genesis 22, 2, God called Abraham to take his son, now pay attention to the language. Take his son, his only son whom he loves, Isaac, and offer him up as a burnt offering on a mountain that the Lord would show him. Genesis 22, verse 4, it says that they journeyed three days until they came to the mountain where Isaac was to be sacrificed. Think of three days in relation to the resurrection of Christ on the third day. Genesis 22.6, it tells us that Abraham took wood for the burnt offering and laid it upon his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Verse, 22, or verse 8 of chapter 22, Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham looks back to his son and says, God himself will provide the lamb. 
Genesis 22, verses 9 through 10, just look at what Abraham does to his son. Abraham built an altar. So Abraham is the one who built this offer on which he was going to sacrifice his son. Abraham arranged the wood on the altar. Abraham bound his son, and Abraham placed his son upon that altar. Right? Who is the one doing the sacrificing here? It's Abraham. Who is the one being sacrificed? Abraham's one and only beloved son. Verse 11, he took the knife in hand, and then in verse 12, you know the story. The angel of the Lord comes and stops him from committing the act. Now, Abraham followed through on God's command throughout this whole process, right? But the Lord did not require him to actually sacrifice Isaac because Isaac was not the lamb that God was going to provide for the sacrifice. He was a type and he was a shadow. He was a a prefiguring of what God was going to be doing when he gave his own beloved son. What he was going to be doing when he gave his only son, right? And sacrificed him. When God arranged the altar, when God placed the wood of the cross on the back of his son, when God laid him on that altar and struck him down with the knife. That's the picture here of a suffering Savior, right? But now look at the promise that God gives to Abraham in verses 16 through 18. Because Abraham obeyed the Lord, God promised not only that he would bless immensely Abraham and his offspring, but also in verse 18, it says that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now here we have in this figuring, in this type, and in this shadow, this foreshadowing of what God was planning to do through the real true seed of Abraham, we have this picture of suffering that yields blessing. Isaac being offered up as a potential sacrifice, and because Abraham obeyed what the Lord called him to do, the obedience led to blessing, not only for Abraham, but to all the nations, right? It's that picture of a a savior, a sacrificial, a sacrificing of, of one in order to bring blessing to the many. Now, that's just, a, that's just one shadow here. We see another one with Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. What do we find with Joseph? We find that it was through his sufferings that God provided salvation for his people. So Joseph was the beloved son of Jacob. He was robed in a, in a robe of splendor and majesty that his other brothers did not have, a, 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 a robe of many colors. He was despised by his brothers. He was betrayed by them. He was sold for the price of a common slave. He was thrown into prison as a righteous man, suffering innocently. But who in the beginning of his third year, after interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, was exalted to the highest position of authority, minus one, in the land of Egypt. You guys catch that? It was in the third year that he was raised up, the beginning of that third year, that he was raised up and exalted as the leader and ruler in Egypt, minus Pharaoh. And that is what put him in a place to be a savior for the people of God when the famine came. Now, you know the rest of the story there, but here the themes of salvation through suffering are so evident and clear, right? 
and even salvation for God's people through one who suffered at their hands, right? It was Joseph's brothers who betrayed him, and it was Joseph's dealings on behalf of his brother that actually saved them in the end. So what do we find here? We find Joseph as a beloved son, and that correlates perfectly to Jesus as the beloved son of the Father. We find Joseph as uh, being sold for the price of a slave. Guess who else was sold for the price of a slave? Jesus was sold for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. We find Joseph being betrayed by his brothers Because of jealousy. Why was Jesus betrayed by his brothers and hung upon a cross? It was because they were jealous of him. Pilate recognized that. We find Joseph raised up out of his sufferings in order to be a savior of God's people. What do we see in Jesus? We see Jesus being raised after his sufferings in order to be a savior for his people. Now, my point with that is simply to say that Joseph serves as a picture in a type of the Messiah who was to come. Now, the clearest picture of and foreshadowing of salvation for God's people through suffering actually comes through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You guys remember what would happen in the sacrificial system. Uh, the, the worshiper who was filled with sin, as long as that worshiper was Uh, bound in his or her sin, he could not come before the Lord and worship him. He had to be cast out. So what had to happen? That sin had to be dealt with. And so here, God provides a means of his sinful people being enabled to come before him and worship and find acceptance before him. And that means was sacrifice. Substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf. In Leviticus, we read of many kinds of sacrifices that were instituted by God to be a means of saving his people from their sins through sacrificing a substitute in their place. And so Leviticus speaks about the sin offering, right? That when someone had sinned against the Lord, they would bring their offering to the front of the tabernacle, and that sinner would lay his hands upon the head of that offering, symbolically transferring the guilt of sin to that animal. And then that sinner himself would take a knife and would slay the animal in the presence of the Lord. And depending on what sacrifice it was, the worshiper would actually be the one who was cutting that sacrifice up into pieces so that the priest could arrange that sacrifice on the altar before God. It's just bloody, it's intimate, it's graphic, it's real, it's gut-wrenching. And it's all supposed to be a picture of what sin results in. The wages of sin is death, and this is as ugly as death gets. The slaying of an innocent victim in the place of the guilty. That is how God's sinful people would make atonement for their sins in the presence of God. That's how they would find acceptance with God was through the vicarious suffering of an innocent substitute. Now, those weren't perfect sufferings for them. They were animals. And the reason why we know they weren't perfect is because they had to be repeated over and over and over again. Not a single sacrifice under the Mosaic legal system ever accomplished eternal redemption. But they were accomplishing a type of redemption that was pointing forward to something greater. So again, we have that picture of salvation for God's people through the suffering of another. 
Now, all of these served as pictures and types and foreshadowings, explaining and illustrating what the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 was going to do when he came. All of those things were picturing what that promised seed was going to suffer and what that promised seed was going to accomplish when he came to bring salvation to God's people. Now, this is made even more explicit through the revelations of the suffering Messiah that's given through the prophets. So we have the, the revelation of a suffering Messiah through promise. We have the revelation of a suffering Messiah through pictures and analogies and illustrations and foreshadowings. And now we have the picture of a suffering Messiah through the predictions of the prophets. Just as an example, Daniel 9, 24. This is, this is one of my favorite predictions of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says here. That a time, Daniel is predicting, the Lord is, is showing Daniel that there would be a time when God would do away with all the shadows and would usher in the substance. So there was going to be a time when God was going to bring a full end to transgression. There was a time coming when God would bring a final end to sin. There's a time coming when he would bring in a final atonement for iniquity and he would bring in everlasting righteousness and he would fulfill and complete all the visions of the prophets. Now verse 25 tells us that all of this was going to come to pass when at the end of the second temple period, Messiah the Prince came. Now you see the connection there, right? All of these things were pictures of what was accomplished in a type, in a shadow form, through the sacrificial system in Israel. And here God is saying, the time is coming when Messiah the Prince comes, when I'm going to do away with all these shadows, and I'm going to bring in the substance that they all point to. It's going to come through Messiah the Prince. And then how would it all be accomplished? How would Messiah the Prince accomplish all these things? How would he bring a full and utter end to transgression and sin and the rebellion of God's people? How would he make a full and final and eternal atonement for God's people? It says in verse 26 that it would be by the Messiah, by the Prince Messiah being cut off and having nothing. That's the very language that's used by God to describe cutting off the nations that were in the promised land before he brought Israel in. It's cutting them off in judgment. It's the very same language that's used to talk about cutting off an Israelite who would not keep the commandments of God. All these blessings that God promised he would bring to his people would come through the Messiah being cut off. Psalm 22 is another one that really paints this vividly and clearly. And I don't want to spend a ton of time going through this, but let me just run through it briefly and point out some things. Psalm 22, verse 1, despite the fact that this person is described in this psalm as um, having been cast upon God from birth and having been faithful to God from the womb of his mother... It says in verse 1 that this innocent person would eventually be forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, uh, verses 12 and 13 of this psalm. It says that he would suffer through rejection from people. Verse 15 says that God himself would lay this person down in the dust of death. 
And then verse 16 clarifies how God was going to lay this innocent person down in the dust of death. It says that dogs have surrounded me. Dogs there is code for Gentile. You remember that? Goliath was described as a dog, right? When Jesus talked about the Gentiles in the New Testament, he described them as dogs, right? The Syrophoenician woman coming to him, he called her a dog. That's what we are. We're the dogs. If you're not a Jewish person in here, you're a dog, all right? It says, dogs have surrounded me. The Gentiles have come around me. And what have they done? They've come around me with a band of evildoers. They have encompassed me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I want you to know something. The only form of death, the only form of laying anyone down in the dust of death in history that involved the piercing of the hands and the piercing of the feet was crucifixion. And this psalm was written 600 years before crucifixion was invented. Now, if, if, if you don't see in that that God was painting an explicit picture of what was going to happen to the Messiah when he came, I don't know what else would be showing you that. This, this innocent person is going to suffer by being forsaken of God, and God is going to lay him down in the dirt by using Gentiles and a band of evildoers to pierce his hands and his feet. Amazing. Just amazing. And when Jesus uttered those words on the cross, when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22.1, and he's signaling to us, this is what's happening to him at that moment. He's being cut off as his hands and his feet are pierced. Now, the ultimate prophetic depiction of the sufferings of the Messiah and the prophets is Isaiah 53. This passage really ties everything that we've looked at tonight, ties it all together. In Isaiah 52, 14, it says that this Messiah, this, this suffering servant of Yahweh, would suffer so greatly that he physically would no longer be recognizable as a man. And think about the sacrificial system at that point where they had to strip the skin off the animal, where they had to cut the animal in pieces and arrange those pieces upon the altar. Here you hear, you see the brutality of suffering that must come upon the victim who's suffering in place of the guilty, otherwise the guilty will not be set free from their sin. Here this man coming is suffering so greatly that he's no longer recognizable as a man. That's exactly what happened with the cat of nine tails before they crucified someone. They had bits of iron, bits of bone, bits of steel and glass or metal and glass, things that would literally rip into flesh down to the bone. And when they ripped that cat of nine tails back, the skin would just be peeled right off of their back. And for the most part, it was 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails. That was, that was a flogging. His appearance marred so greatly that he didn't even look like a man anymore. Isaiah 53.3, it tells us, like Joseph and like the person of Psalm 22, this, this servant of Yahweh was going to be despised and forsaken of men. 
so complete that he would be described as a man of sorrows and one who is acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 7, like Joseph, he was an innocent man suffering from oppression and injustice. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53, his grave would be assigned with the wicked, but all the while he was an innocent man in whom was found no violence and in whom no deceit was in his mouth, having no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53.10 gives us the pinnacle for understanding, the, the, the climactic statement for understanding what was going on in this servant's suffering. Like all the other sacrifices offered in the temple under the Old Testament, this servant, this suffering servant was offered up as an offering to the Lord. He was offered up as a guilt offering. And you realize here, who is the one who is offering the servant up as a guilt offering? It's Yahweh himself. The picture of Abraham and Isaac finally meeting its fulfillment in this Yahweh and his suffering servant. It says in verse 10, it pleased Yahweh to crush him, putting him to grief. And it says, if you, Yahweh, does it say it in this translation? It should say, if you, Yahweh, would render his soul as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. It's, it's Yahweh who is offering up the soul of his servant as a guilt offering. And you notice in verses 5 through 6, it tells us why all of this suffering was necessary. Why did it happen? Verse 5 tells us he was pierced through for our transgressions. Think Psalm 22. Hands and feet pierced. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53.10. The chastening for our peace. Our peace with God. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his wounding we have been healed. Why was all the suffering necessary? Why did this suffering servant have to come and deal and be dealt with so violently by Yahweh himself so that you and I could be healed? So that we could have peace with God, so that our transgressions could be removed. How is that possible? That's where verse 6 comes in. That was possible through what is called vicarious, substitutionary atonement. The suffering of, a, of another in our place in order to make satisfaction to the justice of God. Verse 6, you see the imputation of our sin, of the sins of God's people. You see the imputation of their sin, the reckoning of God's people's sin to this suffering servant. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But what has Yahweh done? Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all, all of our turning away from the Lord, all of our, our lack of keeping the law of God, all of our selfishness, all of our disdain, all of our lust, all of our porn addiction, all of our alcoholism, all of our anger, all of our idolatry, all bit of sin that we have committed in turning away from Yahweh. Yahweh has taken it all and he's placed it on his son. 
Yahweh has caused our iniquity to fall upon him, is what it says. There's a reason why Jews to this day don't read Isaiah 53. In fact, I remember, I remember one Jewish man who had Isaiah 53 read to him and thought that it was a text taken directly out of the New Testament. When in fact it was a Jewish Bible that the man was reading to him. Sinners... Sinners can be healed of their sin. As verse 11 describes it, sinners can be justified before God only because this man suffered in their place. That's the message of Isaiah 53. And what Good Friday is all about is remembering that all of this coalesced, all of this came to a point in the man and in the suffering of the man, Jesus Christ. This is what makes such a dark Friday good news for us. Because in that dark Friday, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit brought the promised, the pictured, and the prophesied sufferings of the Messiah to pass for the salvation of his people. The seed of Abraham has come in Jesus. And through his sufferings, he brings blessing to the world. The greater than Joseph has come and after his sufferings has been made the king of the world in order to provide salvation for his people. The Messiah has been cut off. His hands and his feet have been pierced. He has been laid down in the dust of death by the Lord himself. He has been crushed by Yahweh in order to make full satisfaction to the justice of God in place of sinners. He has given himself as the promised guilt offering in our place. The Lamb of God that Abraham spoke to Isaac about finally came in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took away the sins of the world in his death. That is what we gather here to celebrate. And there's only one thing left for us to do in that celebration. Maybe two parts to that one thing. That is to understand what Jesus has done in our place 2,000 years ago and to receive it. Just like the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the worshipers had to come and lay their own hands on that animal before it was sacrificed in order for that animal to be accepted for them. Leviticus 1.4. In that same way, if the sacrifice of Christ is to be accepted for you, in the presence of God, you also must come to Jesus as the Messiah, and in full faith, you must lay your hands, your guilty, sin-stained hands, upon his precious head. 
And you must own him as the only sacrifice that can cause you to stand guiltless and without blemish in the presence of God. Leviticus 1, 10 through 11, it talks about the cutting up of the sacrifice. You guys have heard me mention that tonight a couple times. With their own hands, the worshiper had to slaughter and cut up in pieces the animal sacrifice that they were offering to the Lord. In that same way, even so, each one of us must realize that it was our own sin and our own guilt that led to the suffering of the Messiah. It was our transgressions, it was our breaking of God's holy law that led to the slaughter of the Son of God for our salvation. And if we will not come with our sin, acknowledging that it's our sin that hacked him to pieces, so to speak, on the cross then we have no share with him. And he will, his sacrifice will not be accepted for us. We have to come and we have to deal with Jesus ourselves if we are going to be saved in him. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? When Jesus was washing Peter's feet, Peter said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you have no place with me. You have no part with me. Uh, even so with us. Good Friday reminds us that all that is necessary to make our peace with God has been accomplished already. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's paid in full. Now the only thing that's left for us to do is to come to Christ and to let ourselves be washed in the cleansing work that Jesus has accomplished for sinners like us. So, beloved, as we come to the Lord's table this Good Friday, let's renew our devotion to Christ in this hope. Let's hold fast to him in light of what he has done, and let's declare with true and full faith that this Jesus Christ, as we gather here, this Jesus Christ has loved me, and this Jesus Christ has given himself up for me. Let's preach that truth to our despairing souls. Anyone despairing in here? Anyone despondent and downcast and struggling to understand what God is doing in this world? That's where the disciples on the road to Emmaus were. And what does Jesus do? He comes to them and he teaches them the word of God in truth so that they would understand God is not out of control. Jesus is totally in line with the will of the Father. All that has taken place has fallen out according to his plan and his desire. Now come and see the safety and the satisfaction and see the, the broad plain where you can set your feet in relation to God and rest in his sovereign love and care. That's what Jesus is doing for us and reminding us of his sacrifice. We may not understand it all. We may not know where everything's going, but we know the one who's holding that future and guiding it to its determined end. And he's done everything that we need him to do in order to bring us safely into his eternal kingdom. And so let's come. Let's come to Jesus at the table and in faith renew our commitment to him in light of his commitment and deep devotion to us. As a benediction tonight, I'd just like to read a section from John 10.
where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And on Resurrection Day, we're going to celebrate the reality that Jesus really did take his life up again once he laid it down. So may you go in the peace of the Lord and the peace he's purchased for you by his death. And I look forward to seeing you again on Sunday. Amen.